one to our first episode of a series where we, the CPA Next Gen Committee, will be delving into the issue of retrofit. The City Property Association is, for those who don't know, a not-for-profit membership body and advocacy group representing the major owners, occupiers, developers, investors and advisors to real estate in the City of London. We as the Next Gen Committee are here as the voice of the next generation and as such, one of our key priorities is to address the climate emergency. So before we kick off, we'll just do some introductions. I'm Alex Parsons, Senior Development Manager at Core. I'm Alice Reid, I'm in the ESG team at Stanhope. I'm Leela Gray, I'm an architect and associate with Shepard Robson. And we are all part of the CPA Next Gen Committee. And we have some fabulous guests with here to discuss the issue of retrofit and refurbishment. Hi, I'm Rachel Hulan. I'm an architect and sustainability coordinator at Orleans Architects. And Biggin, I am a senior director in the CBRE City Office Leasing Team. I'm Ross Sayers from Landsec, uh, Head of Development Management for Central London. So looking after our Central London development pipeline, which is predominantly offices. Fabulous. Thank you all for joining us. So um, we're going to kick off because it's obviously a topic that's in the press at the moment and it's a conversation probably lots of people are having. Um, But the built environment is directly responsible for 25% of the UK's total greenhouse gas emissions, therefore reducing carbon emissions from our buildings um, through design, construction and obviously eventually operation is key to achieving that ambition to reach net zero. So firstly, just to throw out into the room, um, do we think that the sort of ambition to be net zero by 2050 is achievable? And what do we think kind of main challenges are to get us there? I'm very optimistic. So, yes, I think it is achievable. <laughs> I mean, it's achievable already if you account for offsetting, which mm-hmm. obviously we don't. So maybe to reclarify the question, is net zero by 2050 achievable without offsetting? Yes is the answer, but it's going to take an absolutely fundamental shift in how we approach design and construction and operation of our buildings. And just to be clear, when we say offsetting, we're talking about carbon offsets, effectively. So payment? Yeah, you calculate um, the carbon tonnage that the building has emitted if you're doing embodied carbon offsets. It will be up to practical completion and then annually if you're doing refurbishment or replacement cycles in the building. Um, In terms of net zero operational energy, that's one that most people are probably more familiar with where you calculate the um, carbon that has been produced by the generation of typically its electricity. So in theory, that one should be easier to do if the grid has been decarbonized. So if we've switched to 100% renewables by 2050. Um, Now, jury is still out on that and there are better experts out in the field. But... um, when ORMs look at net zero, we are aiming for net zero whole life carbon, which means we're looking at both embodied and operational carbon. And in order to do that, the most challenging one, and the one that we've been focusing on for the past few years, is net zero embodied carbon. And I think the only way that we're going to be able to do this is through significant material reuse. So yes, retrofit, but it's retrofit above and beyond. You know, with retrofit, we need new materials. We need to add materials to the buildings. And at the moment, they're coming from new sources Mm -hmm. and we need to shift away from that because it's going to be impossible to decarbonize the entirety of the supply chain. Yeah. And there's also the challenge that we're just not even going to have enough virgin materials to keep us going at the pace that we need to. Um, So I'll maybe throw it out to to the other panelists, but um, I think it's doable, but we have to start working today on it and we have to be prepared for an almighty shift in how we do things. 
And so does that mean that we need to design differently to account for the materials we use? Like, will the end product look differently because if we're trying to use more sustainable it depends raw on materials or, or from the sort of potentially start that the outcome will be slightly different? Potentially. So if you imagine um, an industrial building thrown in Shoreditch for sake of argument, um, they might be quite happy with a dinged and dented front of house finish because that fits in with the warehouse aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Take then um, a building in Mayfair, there's a certain expectation on the quality of front of house finish there. So maybe there are some new materials brought in. So say plasterboard, you might need new plasterboard and new plaster. Or is there a way that we could reuse plasterboard and just put new plaster on it? Yeah. Um, what, what parts can we determine need a really, really high grade finish? And which parts can't? Does it matter if the components within the wall are reused? Because you're not going to see them. Arguably, no. So this was the premise of a conversation that we had with Grosvenor, which led to a body of research that we completed on material reuse um, in conjunction with Elliot Wood, Arup, um, Heta Architects, and then with support from Real London and the Circuit Project. And the first thing we need to do is get this material out of buildings. Mm-hmm. So we need to look at how we're deconstructing buildings as opposed to demolishing them. We then need to look at how we're dealing with these is that material going back to a manufacturer? Is it going to a centralised salvage yard? What are the best ways of handling that material? How do we check it, make sure it's safe, get warranties, de-risk the process, make sure that the product can perform as we need it to? Yeah. And then you hit the, how do we design it back in? And we've been trying this out at Orms, um, and it takes a lot of thought and consideration, but essentially we need to design more flexible specifications. We need to find better ways of communicating our final outcomes, our clients' expectations to each other and to contractors so that everyone's on the same page. So it's an awful lot of work to do, mm-hmm. but it's in progress in various research groups. Um, and the research groups, the benefit of those is people are applying in practice. So I take earnings directly from these working groups and th- try them out on Orms projects. Orms projects are my little guinea pigs. <laughs> and whenever it doesn't work out, we learn from we We share openly back in the research um, field. And then that becomes a problem that then we try to tackle. And we're currently doing an engagement piece with contractors about how we communicate these ideas to them. And we're doing it through the UKGBC um, contractor forum. So I think there's about 20 tier one, two and three contractors within that. Um, Grosvenor are heading that up and they've brought in their um, contract lawyers as well to support that conversation. And we also have Alinea in there um, with the QS perspective. So trying to have these really informed conversations, having the right people around the table and just the first thing to do is listen, listen to everyone's concerns and then try and understand how we as a collective mm-hmm. can overcome them. And this is the sort of approach we're going to need to have if we are going to meet that goal of net zero. It has to be a collaboration. Because it's interesting, I guess, the point of what becomes deemed acceptable. So in terms of the project you deliver or is an occupier willing to take that finished difference? And that's what I was going to say. You talk about having the right people around the table. The people that are not at that table are the occupiers. Mm -hmm. So it's incredible what you've just discussed. But every single word and phrase and person you described is not in an occupy mindset in terms of the end user of that office could take your lovely, fantastic net zero carbon building and then just brownwash it occupationally because they don't understand what has been done to facilitate yeah. a kind of green building. And I think that definitely what we're facing on the ground at the moment is you look at everybody who, you know, 
has committed to be net zero carbon by 2030, not 2050, I don't think they've got any idea what they've committed to facilitate within their real estate strategy. Because actually you look at people on the ground, you look at what people are doing in terms of those that have committed to be net zero carbon by 2030, and they fundamentally have committed to buildings way beyond 2030 that can't facilitate them to be net zero carbon. They can do worse, and, and certainly that's why we're seeing so many occupiers buy their buildings in the London market. So they, that gives them the control yeah, it to hit control their to, target. Now those are smart. Those are well-informed, grown-up occupiers across the central London office market. But your your Joe Public in Mayfair taking one floor has no idea what he requires to become she mm. he or she requires to become net zero carbon. And I think that. There's an awful lot of work that the real estate industry is doing to create these buildings that are going to be able to facilitate the goal. I don't know how much on the ground learning there is from the occupier in terms of other than we have an ESG agenda we need to fulfil. We'll be net zero carbon by 2030, 2040, 2050. But actually, what does that mean? Then when they come out to assess their real estate strategy, Mm. what are the compromises we have to make to facilitate our end goal? And are those compromises in line with what we've previously done you know, 20 years ago everybody wanted a big square trading floor plate with no columns and now fundamentally we all know that the only way you're going to reduce your carbon in the building is to have a much smaller column group. you know mm. all those things got to have more columns you've got to have less concrete poured you know but that means that when you present to an occupier a brand new building with a column through floor plate yeah and a retrofitted building with many columns but much less concrete poured and I guess it's first impression. Face value perspective, yeah. the, the first option yeah. is currently still the preferred option. Oh, it's a long, we're, on a, we're very early on the journey, aren't we, to, yeah. to people actually setting it? Because the goals are still a fairly long way away, not too far yeah. away. But, but organisations are coming out, big tech firms are saying, you know, we will not occupy a building. And now they're talking about embodied carbon as well, not just operational carbon. So I think the, you know, the operational carbon and... Yeah. Um, um, low energy buildings and, and net zero carbon buildings in operation has been spoken about for a while. But I think big tenants now are saying we won't occupy a building that has an embodied carbon of more than 600 kilos of yeah. CO2 per square meter if it's, a, if it's a new building. And these are massive occupiers that are coming to the market now. And what some of those are saying is we won't deal with professional services firms that don't aspire to the same goals that we do. And then you see really? the big lawyers and the big advisors and funds and they're going to have to start because it will just this is how change happens yeah. it starts with big organisations and then it starts to filter down and people say well you know what? when the first big legal firm that finds that they lose a big client because they're in in a building that doesn't yeah. um, hit the sustainability clients of their the sustainability aspirations of their clients um, that will really start to to, to shift the dial yeah. but I think the behaviours it is I think that's the thing that will change or well, it has to change is the behaviours and expectations of of people occupying these buildings. It's getting what the you, jargon you into a simplified form because I think at the moment the occupier comes in and they don't have to compromise on, on specification but they design something that works for them and you don't have all of this resilience and because you don't know who's going to occupy the building yeah. so you design all this stuff in not knowing who the tenant is going to be so you've probably over-designed it and over-specified everything, allowing for four tenant splits per floor and all these kind of bits and pieces. 
Whereas if you have an occupier there, they know exactly how they're going to use the building. They say, you know what, we can turn off all the central plants at five o'clock apart from level six. Which, so we keep them know, there. <laughs> um, and they know, how the, they know how the building works. They know yeah. how many people cycle to the office. They know, you know, have a good idea of when people are coming and going. And um, that, I think we so are looking on a speculative and it's if you're looking on a spec scheme and you're trying to maintain maximum flexibility for an occupier from any sector, you, that's when the challenge probably. Yeah. Over specifying maybe. Well, I think that's where we need to get smarter. The London market is too um, sophisticated to constantly be spec building to, to not be spec building buildings because people always come. Yeah. But to be bespoke building buildings for occupiers really hard. Well, I guess you go back in time to when London had sectors and yeah, you knew where you would... And, well, now hang on. Okay. If we go down that route of designing a building that is for one occupation, have we not just tied ourselves in a knot? Because that's not sustainable because buildings need to have that flexibility mm-hmm. and adaptability. And it is a game that we have to play at the moment of, of judging and weighing up and creating that balance of... How much carbon and money do we invest in creating this ultra flexible, ultra ultra adaptable building? And how much do we to make something really flexible? And how much do we really need to? Because having something that is completely utterly flexible is probably not very pragmatic when you know, you know, one of our buildings on Oxford Street. That is probably always going to have an element of retail, albeit we don't know what retail will look like today. And it will probably always be commercial use. It's unlikely we're going to start putting resi buildings into that particular part of London. So with that in mind, what is the right answer for that building? So I don't think it's going so sector specific, but I think the interesting thing that we're seeing from these unoccupied buildings is this sense of custodianship. And that's maybe something as an industry we need to become more aware of. We need to just, you know, we work hard, we come into work every day, we put our heads down, we get through our tasks for the day. But I think as a collective, we need to step back and just look with this sense of responsibility, which is massive. What is our role? And if we are custodians of buildings, how should we approach this? And I think with occupiers, no, they're not necessarily around the table. And yes, it would be great to get them around the table. But as a practice, we do try to balance both working with developers and working with occupiers so we can get a sense of what is out there. Um, And we try to support our developers. So if Ross is developing a building and we've worked really hard on this, I will write them a piece to put into the literature. We will support the education of the agents. We will support um, the writing of clauses going into the green leases to try and encourage people. And effectively, we're saying look, here are all the investments that we've made in this building because we believe in it. And we encourage you to buy into this. And here are some ways that you can do that. And we're happy to work with you to get there. So I think there is that realisation that we have this responsibility and how we're going to see that through. And I suppose my question to you guys is, as architects, we view ourselves as leaders of the design process. You know, we are usually the ones responsible for making sure it's coordinated and we're the ones that are on site to help solve the problems. But how can we support you and your roles in in getting this through? Because we think, right, well, we help you with leases. We help you with agents. We try and make the sustainability ambitions of the building somewhat obvious. Um, But, you know, obviously balancing the risk of greenwashing there. So what else can we do to support that in the future? 
I think it's potentially with bringing in digital technologies, VR. You know, take somebody onto a floor plate, get the architectural team to sketch up a, a layout, let them give you a brief of what they're looking for, get the team on board to sketch a layout, put headsets on everyone and walk them on the floor plate. That's a sustainable way of letting a speculative building without overdoing it on finishes. But you only install shell and core, and then you can work with that occupier to de- develop their space in the way that they need. I think that would be massive as an industry. But if we make that decision as an industry, then there's nobody competing that's doing something different. Because the fear at the moment is they'll walk onto your shell and floor uh, or, or um, shell and core floor plate. Yeah. And haven't got the imagination to, you know, know what it will be like and how amazing it will be when it's fitted out. And then they walk to a building next door that's fully fitted out or it's at least cat A and they like that better and it's quicker to occupy. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, you know, you, you're, you're competing. So you say, well, we have to do it. Otherwise, the building will be empty and there's no less sustainable building than a you know, building yeah. that sat there empty. But I think, you know, there's enough people on this journey now to say we can start to make, we should start to make these sort of decisions as a, as an industry, mm-hmm. if that's the right thing to do. And I'm also going to throw out, there is a rating system. Letty um, did an alignment exercise last year to bring everybody in the industry around the table and agree new whole life carbon targets and body carbon targets. And as part of that, have produced a letter rated, um, rating system. So when you put in your 530 or your 600 kilos of carbon per square metre of GIA, it spits out A, B, C, D. So currently, best practice building is a C. So a lot of our clients are coming to us and saying, but I want to be an A++, which, to be honest, in today's world is like a lick of paint and maybe mm-hmm. a bit of new carpet. Sustainable paint. Really, it's agents that we need to help along this journey. And if they understand the system and their rating system, as they're showing potential occupiers around space, they can be explained this mm-hmm. is an A-rated building or B-rated building. And then the tenant can have that um, comfort and that knowledge that, of where this sits without having to know all of the jargon and the numbers and mm-hmm. what goes into it. But the way people occupy space, you know, over the years, whether it's got 1.6 litres of fresh air or, you know, whatever the amount of, mm-hmm. all buildings have got a fair amount of fresh air, but generally with that over-specified and that, you know, one to eight or one to six, and they're never, ever occupied to that level. But do you think that for an occupier, when they're actually using the space, they, they notice the, you know, the number of air changes per second or do you or is the important stuff access to daylight access to external space showers amenity exactly. cycling provision you know those are the things that and volume you know these are the things that make people yeah. happy and make and, and, and they're the things that aren't impacted by a reduction in embodied carbon or making something a more sustainable building so you, i don't think we need to target things that are going to make the space less enjoyable because it's sustainable. We need to make the building still absolutely amazing to bring people into the office and to enjoy what they're doing. But at the same time, take away the things that we have been doing that haven't been sustainable, but aren't necessarily making people's occupation any more enjoyable. No, I, I completely agree. I, I think, as I come back to the point that, exactly as you say, many people have put these big lists of and, and don't run those big lists have changed in the last 10 years of my career. You know, when, I, when, we, when I first was in the market, it was, you know, one to six, one to eight, absolutely you have to do this. You know, you have to be able to survive four to four because, you know, we've just, come, we've just come out of the GFC and the world was on its knees and everyone was in too much, you know, occupying too much space. And suddenly we had to get offload space because we locked into a long-term lease. And 
the thought of not being able to divide your floor into four, you know, there was this kind of world we were in. We're now in a very different world post pandemic where everybody's like, well, I want fresh air, I want natural ventilation, I want to be, you know, and we are in a different place where you can begin to offer people things mm-hmm. that they actually want and you can start to pull back some of the technical spec. Now, there are businesses that still require that technical spec. And it's this is where I talk about, you know, you bring an occupier in and they effectively brownwash your green building because actually they a they don't know what they're doing because they've just gone this is nice we'll take this building you know it's ticked all their boxes mm. they've taken it and then they op- occupy it and operationally they just run it into into the ground because they don't understand that actually you know orms landsec anyone put together a perfect building and it's education on me to be able to tell them how to do it but it's also on day one once they've fitted out because you know, again we're now in a place where there's so many standards of fit out to be environmentally sustainable so again they sign up to that on day one when they put people into that space who is in charge of how they operate that building because you've uh, uh, you know, the architect has moved on to the next project the developer has sold it I've leased it it's the, um, it's 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 in it's always the landlord. But who's yeah. you know, but is it the landlord? Because how can the landlord control what the occupier is doing? You know, and, and so everybody's edu- everyone's being educated through the process. Yeah. Everyone who sat on the real estate steering committee has been educated through the process. It's sit- it's the person sitting at the desk yeah. who maybe leaves the light on or does you know those things where just natural habit and they aren't educated in mm. it and, and so it, it is a landlord tenant partnership that has to survive throughout the length of the lease in order to facilitate operationally those buildings remaining the beacons of sustainability that were created by the real estate community yeah but i think you know all the stuff we're doing now more and more data more and more metering um and more and more control, CO2 sensors, um, just gives people the opportunity to actually understand what they're doing. And I think maybe having a kind of league table of all your occupiers in the office and ranking people and competing might be a bit too much for some occupiers that might find that a bit too much kind of like big brother. Um, but I think if there's if people have the opportunity to understand what they're doing and how they're using their energy, because energy is going to cost a lot of money as well, as yeah. it does already, and it's going to, only going to be going one way. Um, they just need someone to hold their hand and educate them through the process. But I think to 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 say, and I think you're right. You know, a lot of occupiers at the moment don't wouldn't understand embodied carbon statistics or metrics or other things. But I think if you just look how much it's moved and how much um, the sustainability and carbon and climate changes in the press every day, and it's only going one way and it's moving so fast. It's not long, I don't, I don't think, until you know, it's all about the war for talent and getting the best people to work in your buildings as they're coming out of schools and universities. Yeah. And, and that's, I think, the more of the push rather than government down setting targets to say yeah. net zero by whenever. It's more, I think it's going to be the, the, the people coming out of schools and universities. I, who are they, who I, are they going to work for? Well, and I want to work, I want to work for an organisation that says the right things. But just, on, just on that, we had a meeting at the a lawyer's office yesterday and sort of run from the train station it was roasting hot and you kind of walk into the meeting room and it's set at 16 degrees and it's lovely because it's freezing cold and 
But immediately, half of that minute, I started feeling guilty. And I think, and because it's, you know, this is not environmentally friendly, mm-hmm. sitting in a, on a hot day in a freezing cold room. I could probably sit here if the room was about 24 degrees That's and, why not, really, you and not really be overly, overly <laughs> bothered. But the that, pandemic has really helped us with this as well. Because we all had to go and work from home. And I don't know. Dress, dress for the seasons or dress for the day. I don't have air conditioning. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I have heating, but I don't have air conditioning. So I think a lot of people, and you know, even within our own office, there was always complaints about the air con, you know, centralized system. You know, we mm. have an element of control, but you're never going to make everybody happy. And it would have always tended on the side of freezing, in my opinion. Um, but everybody's thermal comfort levels and perception of comfort is very different. And being able to work at home meant you had to deal with these wider ranging temperatures and conditions and you became more comfortable with the idea that I'm going to have to change what I'm wearing and I'm going to have to open and close doors and blinds and manually adjust um, my environment to suit me. So when we returned to the office, I saw a noticeable increase in the number of people saying, oh, it's really stuffy today. Can I just open a window? And we have aircon running. Um, We actually can't open our windows. Our our windows are operable, but as smoke vents. So um, while they open, they're not supposed to be. And it's from a safety consideration as much as a sustainability one. So you had to say, well, no, actually, we can't. And if I could turn off all of our fan core units, I really would. And if I could open the windows, I also really would. Because I think people have this higher tolerance now Mm. for varying temperatures. And meeting the BCO guidelines, they are guidelines. They're not absolutes. Um, And I think as an industry, we're going to be testing and pushing these boundaries a little bit more. And as far as I'm concerned, the best MEP engineers are going to be the ones that design themselves out of business. Can you design me a building with no kit in it? That would be amazing. Nat Vent building in London. Is it completely inconceivable? I don't think so. Well, I think that's all we have time for today. I'm sure there's plenty more that we can discuss on future podcasts. But for now, thank you very much to our guests for joining us. A huge thank you to the City Property Association for your help and support in creating this podcast and to Gardner and Theobald in your support and sponsorship of the CPA Next Gen. Until next time, we've been the CPA Next Gen Committee. Thanks very much.